From the Lean Enterprise Institute in Boston, this is the WLEI Podcast, where we share stories of people making the world better through lean thinking and practice. For more information about LEI, including how we can help you apply lean thinking, please visit lean.org. What is the best way to tackle complex problems? Getting better at this perennial challenge certainly fuels the beating heart of lean practice, and it plays a starring role in the four workarounds, strategies from the world's scrappiest organizations for tackling complex problems, a new book by Paolo Savage. Welcome to WLAI, the podcast of the Lean Enterprise Institute. I'm your host, Tom Ehrenfeld, and today, Paolo shares instructive stories of people and companies adopting a creative, flexible, and adaptive approach involving shrewd workarounds. Welcome to WLAI, the podcast for the Lean Enterprise Institute. I'm your host, Tom Ehrenfeld, and today we're speaking with Paolo Savage, author of a forthcoming book titled The Four Workarounds, Strategies from the World's Scrappiest Organizations for Tackling Complex Problems. Welcome, Paolo. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. I'm very happy to be here with you. Excellent. Now, your new book is, I really enjoyed it. It's a very pragmatic and thoughtful book about ways that people can tackle problems in a very immediate resourceful fashion and i think there's a lot of lean overlap and we, we the what i was struck by is um the emphasis is often working backwards from an existing problem that it's not all about the most ideal outcomes or best imagined ideal solutions but rather it's using this wealth of cases and examples to say, okay, person X was in a situation and was frustrated or stymied and developed really thoughtful countermeasure approaches. And I, I hope I'm being faithful to it, but perhaps you could talk about that. And then you identify four types of workarounds. And if you could Maybe respond to that general observation. I may be way off. <laughs> um, and then please tell us more about the four types of workarounds you identify. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you, Tom. Uh, and I think you were spot on. Uh, the, the, the book is very focused on showing uh, very creative, flexible, adaptive ways of tackling complex problems in ways that embrace uncertainty and that complexity that you don't try to tame complexity you, you you embrace it right like you you make sure that you use resources sometimes in unconventional ways uh, and you benefit from what already exists uh, to address problems differently and in very effective ways uh, that create in ways as well that create very needed outcomes so that's the the, the essence of the book I would say that uh, a workaround is a uh, challenges the the not only the ways we normally see problem solving, but also who should be solving these problems. Um, so, for example, one of the cases that I work with in Zambia 
uh, was about uh, lack of access to diarrhea treatment. Uh, it's a problem that is so pervasive in many low-income countries around the world. You cannot find life-saving medicines for diarrhea treatment uh, that is extremely cheap. It's over-the-counter. Even people living in extreme poverty can potentially afford this medicine because it's that cheap, right? right. Uh, so it's a bit obscene if you think about this problem that still so many people cannot find these medicines when they need. And it's one of the biggest healthcare issues we still have today. Um, so what if you think about the ways of tackling this very complex problem, you're normally going to try to confront the obstacles, the things that prevent medicines from reaching these places. So if you confront this obstacle, you're going to say, hey, there's a, a lack of infrastructure. The infrastructure is very poor, very difficult to, to, to improve. And of course, tackling this obstacle might be relevant. It may take years to be solved, and it requires a lot of resources. Many failures will arise as well when you try to do something very complex like this. And of course, uh, what I'm trying to show here is that you don't necessarily have to confront these obstacles to get things done. You can walk around them. Uh, and the case in Zambia that I found in, fascinating. Which, Zambia? Zambia. 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 Yeah, yeah the, the country in, in, in Africa. Yep. Uh, the, 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 this case shows uh, an organization that instead of tackling the obstacle, they ask themselves, okay, we cannot find life-saving medicines, some of these life-saving medicines in remote regions, but you find things like Coca-Cola. So why can't we tap into the existing distribution of Coca-Cola and other fast-moving consumer goods to make this medicine available as well, right? You don't have to necessarily tackle healthcare problems with the healthcare solutions you can benefit from fast-moving consumer goods from a parallel system work across silos and work around these very durable embedded constraints that prevent things to yeah medicines to be found or, or and 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 this is a pattern that i identified across many cases uh, and around categor the world. you categorize this as piggybacking it's the first of four types of um workarounds where they exactly yeah and the outside an existing structure that they could repurpose essentially to to yeah exactly yes all the cases in, in in this book show workarounds but i found out that there are four core approaches and this one is a case of piggybacking so it means that you identify relationships that have not yet been explored. And some of these relationships might, might be very unconventional, like making medicines available by piggybacking on Coca-Cola's distribution chain is definitely not something very conventional, but it saved many lives and it improved a lot the access of medicines in remote regions. Um, and there are many other cases of piggybacking that I, I could offer. So for example, uh, in the financial sector, uh, many companies that started by piggybacking on uh, financial infrastructure to provide a, a rival service. So they, they kind of like piggyback on their rivals <laughs> to create a service that uh, works in, 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 that, uh, that, uh, in, in that case, for example, that I, I use was a, a company called Wise. Uh, and they created a, a service to offer peer-to-peer -peer, uh, international transfers. And for that, they piggyback on other banks, 
right. and they do that brilliantly, right? So the many possibilities of tapping into these unexplored relationships, and these relationships can be with organizations that uh, you may team up with, but may even be your rivals, your competitors. And one aspect of this that really intrigued me was this commonality among people um, using these approaches of tackling a very specific as opposed to a general and abstract problem. So later in the book, you kind of take a shot rightfully at consultancies that try to deliver big grand solutions when in fact, and this is a core lean idea, you often thrive when you break the problem down situationally. And just as lean believes that customers should pull value from the system rather than companies pushing it at the market. Many of the kind of most interesting examples share this notion of being pulled, that they're responding to some situation, some problem that they know and solve it, which enables them to kind of successively solve more problems. And I'm thinking of um, the individual who was shocked to find out how expensive it was to convert foreign currency that it, it you know the banks were taking 40 percent and so he built on a peer-to-peer network with a friend to bypass that and it was a short-term solution that grew into a broad you know successful network um so was it by design that you sought folks who were kind of very situational and pragmatic or was this something that like you started to find as a common theme uh, i found this a common theme i didn't start searching for cases like this the the origins of this work was uh, uh it, it it took me to completely unexpected places when i when i actually started the, the this research um, I was working as a consultant, and that's one of the reasons why I criticized consultants later on. I was kind of like criticizing myself. <laughs> uh, reflecting, let's say. Reflecting, yes. Um, the When working as a consultant, and, uh, and, and in many places that I had already worked, I, I worked consulting, uh, for example, for a project that was uh, in the Amazon with traditional populations, but also there was a project from the OECD and the World Bank, so more international setting, kind of uh, high, uh, yeah, high-end buildings, right, in, instead of the middle of the forest. But also, I worked with uh, entrepreneurs in favelas and so on. So many different settings, large organizations, for-profit, non-profit, and I realized that many of the recommendations I was giving had similar sets of recommendations, uh, like more coordination, more alignment. Uh, and these things are not necessarily wrong, right? Uh, I think no one will say that more collaboration will be necessarily negative, but they are generic. And I I, I felt frustrated with these recommendations that I was giving. And, and as I had already worked a lot with this idea of systems thinking and trying to address very complex problems, I started asking myself, who doesn't do these things that I'm recommending? And, and, and uh, what are the different kinds of ways of acting systems and having big impact without necessarily relying on these recommendations? So I decided to study computer hackers. 
Okay. Uh, because computer hackers hack into systems without knowing much from the outset. They don't have a lot of resources. They don't necessarily have to collaborate that much or coordinate their action. They get into the systems that were intentionally designed to keep them out, and they sometimes very successfully cause big impact. Yeah. Uh, and I was interested in seeing like what do they do in these systems and whether organizations could be hackier, right? If they could adopt this hacky approach. And as I studied computer hackers, I identified that the core of their approach is that they work around constantly. They don't tackle the, the, the obstacles in front of them. They work around them. Think of the Trojan horse. That is one of the most famous hacks and it's named after the, 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 the very brilliant workaround that was developed uh, in the, the Trojan uh, war, right? The myth. Yeah. Uh, yep. You don't have to break into the wall and or through the gates. You, if you find an ingenious way of getting through uh, with the gates being open for you, right? And, uh, and, and that's a bit similar to the actual hack uh, called Trojan uh, Horse. It's a bit similar. You piggyback uh, or you find a loophole uh, to get in. And, the, uh, and as I found these workarounds from hackers, I also realized that many organizations were already being hacky. They already implemented these workarounds in ingenious ways, flexible ways to tackle all sorts of complex problems. And that was actually the core of my research. I started studying these crappy organizations around the world, tackling problems ranging from education, sanitation, uh, human rights, uh, sometimes more focused on profit as well, uh, others more focused on social environmental problems. Uh, and trying to understand what they had in common and how they approached these problems and how they worked around these obstacles. So that's uh, where the, the patterns uh, have arisen. They, they arose from these cases of scrappy organizations and the patterns are identified in how they tackled complex problems. One interesting dynamic to me is that your, your book has to bring together this more generalized body of knowledge and advice for successful workarounds. Well, at the same time, it's really grounded in um, a, an embrace of deviancy. So you discuss the value of being a deviant, which is not synonymous with being disobedient. Um, it actually reminds me of a book by a friend of mine, Art Kleiner, called The Age of Heretics. And heretics are folks who are make change by remaining in an organization and you know uh, defying some of the holy strictures of the organization, but remain loyal to it. And um, deviancy, to me, in in your context, characterizes people who really understand the current situation and yet design or take advantage of existing rules to produce different outcomes. Um, can you just talk about what it, what is this notion of deviancy and how does that tie into creating successful workarounds? Sure, yeah. So workarounds are bypassing some sorts of obstacles and these obstacles can be rules. Rules can be formal or informal, uh, customary or actually uh, a legislation, regulation. 
they uh, shape what is expected from us in every context. It doesn't mean necessarily that we uh, that we are obedient to to, to the rules uh, in in every situation. You might be obedient uh, to the rule, uh, or, or, or even worse. Let's imagine a scenario: you might be disobedient, uh, but at the same time conforming to that rule. So let me give an example. I'm from Brazil, and when I'm in Brazil, I cross the street sometimes when the the light is red for me as a pedestrian. Uh, or when I went to India, for example, I did that as well because everyone else did, right? Like you, it, that's the default in that specific context. But you are being disobedient because there's a red light, right? Like you shouldn't be crossing the street. Uh, when I'm in Germany, that, that everybody waits regardless of whether there's a car <laughs> nearby. I also waited because I conform to the rules, the the, the informal rules. Uh, so you can be disobedient and a conformist at the same time. And what I try to show with this book, because many of the cases of workarounds are controversial, uh, especially when they are working around rules and rules that can be very, that depend on your ethics, depend on your values, on your priorities. So let's, let me give an example that is controversial. Uh, this organization based in the Netherlands is uh, pro-choice. They think that women should be allowed to get an abortion if they want to. Uh, so completely based on their wish, right? Uh, but most countries in the world won't allow people to get abortions on demand. Uh, and uh, that's based on the rule, the, the rule of the place where they are based, where they reside. In the, uh, in the strict laws existing in the country. that Exactly, yeah. So let's say in Poland, for example, abortion is not legal. So women cannot get an abortion uh, if they need or want one. Or, or, uh, so what this organization realized, the, the way that they deviate uh, in a legal way and uh, in a very interesting creative way is that they have a boat from the Netherlands and they sail to places where abortion is uh, illegal. So let's say they go to Poland to keep the same example. Women who want to get an abortion go on board and they sail to international waters which is very doable because international waters is not that far from the coastline of the country. So let's say in a in well, like half fine. an hour, perhaps, yeah. Yeah. they reach international waters. In international waters, the legislation that applies is the one of the flag of the boat. Uh, in that case, since the boat is from the Netherlands and the legislation in the, the Netherlands is pro-choice, women can get a safe and legal abortion service and then be brought back to the countries where they reside, where abortion is illegal. So in that way, they are bypassing a law of a country uh, to provide abortion services. Yeah. Uh, the, this case is clearly controversial. Some people might agree with it and think that it's great deviance because it's women's rights. Some people might disagree. And I have many cases in the book that are controversial, that depend on ethics, people's ways of, of seeing things. Uh, I'm, I am I think that case, so very personal, based on my ethics, I, I think women should be allowed to get an abortion service on demand if they want to. Uh, but I disagree with other workarounds, for example, that are used for not paying taxes or for <laughs> perhaps in sometimes in legal ways avoiding taxes. Because I think people should pay tax, especially the rich, right? But so uh, this depends on your 
ethics, the the and 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 uh, the the workaround as a method is very deviant. Uh, it's not necessarily disobedient because you are not necessarily clashing against the rules. You are working around them in legal ways. And that's very powerful in, as a change-making mechanism because you don't clash against the existing power structures or against the dominant rules. You find ways of working around them to get things done. And that's why the biggest word that came to mind <clears throat> reading the book and re you know, just reflecting on it is pragmatism, that it's always a very kind of practical, situational um, approach to A, deeply understanding the situation, and then B, unpacking the problem into ways of um, tackling, you know, developing immediate countermeasures. Um, mm -hmm. And There are cases, though, where you show how breaking down a problem into a very, very specific case can create immediate small change that sets the basis for larger change down the road, which is something you talk about with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and how she... Uh, took a legal approach to basically challenging prevailing discriminatory laws. Um, can you can you explain that? Sure. Yes. Uh, so the uh, you can think of workarounds as like ways of breaking down problems and in a very pragmatic, practical ways getting things uh, solved or get things done uh, in resourceful and creative and immediate ways. Uh, but you can also start from resources and, and then refine problems. So the, the case I mentioned in, in Zambia was like that. They didn't necessarily start from the understanding that diarrhea was the medicine, but they realized that you don't find that you don't find some basic medicines in remote regions, but you find Coca-Cola. And then they thought, what kind of medicine can we offer within these contacts, right? And 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 to pursue this workaround. So it's um not necessarily always breaking down the problem or reframing the problem. I, it, this can be very iterative as a as an exercise. And it was uh, and iterative, in, even in the small moves they took once they landed on using the existing distribution network of Coca-Cola, you show how that led to them designing ways to include measuring cups and um, counteract existing regulations that pave the way for them to exploit this breakthrough strategy. Exactly, yes. And, and it's because of these iterations that one can stack workaround after workaround and build on these, uh, these interventions in ways that perhaps you couldn't foresee from the beginning, right? Like you couldn't tell from the beginning where you would land. Uh, but it's because of these sequential steps uh, that you didn't know from the outset, that you might explore and identify possibilities for very transformative change. In the case of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I find fascinating because you can see this large-scale transformation, uh, which was triggered by uh, a workaround, a, a brilliant workaround that she pursued with an association and with her, her husband, uh, Marty Ginsburg.
she, as many of the listeners might know, she was very engaged in promoting uh, women's rights. So she was, and, and, and especially at a time where women, uh, and I'm not saying that it's still not the case and that there's no gender inequality today, but the emphasis was very focused on sex-based discrimination. We didn't necessarily conceive at the time trans rights, or these were not necessarily a huge topic or a topic that she was very engaged with, but she was very interested in fighting discrimination against women. Uh, when she started doing that as a lawyer, before she became a, a Supreme Court justice, she tried to take some cases of women who had clearly been discriminated for the sex, but they were not recognized by judges who were men because men thought that women were fragile and they were just being taken care of, right? So they, they, they were getting the best of two worlds. They were not necessarily being discriminated. That was uh, a view that was recurrently uh, uh, common uh, among judges at that time. Uh, what so going through this route was very challenging, right? Like you gotta convince men that women were being discriminated once they, when they thought that women were actually being uh, were benefiting from this system. So it's it's challenging stuff. What she did was uh, with her husband and and, and others, uh, she found a case where a man had been discriminated for his sex. Yeah. Uh, and that changed a lot. It changed the lens, right? Because uh, this was a case of uh, of a man, Moritz, who uh, was not married uh, and whose mom was old and he had to care for her. But the law didn't conceive a man caring for an elderly person, right? That was a job for a woman <laughs> at the time. And they, they didn't even conceive that a man could be in that position. And a woman in that position would be entitled to some tax benefits. And because he was a man, he wasn't entitled to those tax benefits. He had been discriminated for being a man. And he uh, wanted to claim the expenses for her home care as a tax, tax deduction. That was the legal basis upon which they launched this case. Correct? Exactly. Yes. So in, in that case, uh, they went to court and, and showed that this man had been discriminated for his sex. And of course, <laughs> explaining that discrimination to a court of judges who were men as well was much easier, right, than <laughs> at the time. What we, what, and, and, and one of the reasons why she was so excited about this case is that she knew that this would create a precedent for right. sex to show, because the, the current dis the, the discourse at the time was that there was no sex-based discrimination in the law, in, in the practice of law in the United States. Once they showed that a man had been discriminated for his sex, it created a precedent that was later used in many cases in court, but also by Congress people to change laws, uh, right. to, uh, to promote uh, sex uh, well uh, equality among men and women. Uh, so again, the, the view at the time was quite binary, right? The focus was on promoting equality for women. And the, the way they did this was by walking around and defending a man. And they very shrewdly selected one case with a very specific legal argument. And with this whole backstory about what the kind of challenge is and 
you know, why it had a better chance of prevailing in court. And in so doing, they were they, they benefited from stacks that that ruling justified further rulings. In fact, as you note in the book, it prompted, I forget who who opposed it to share a list of 600 plus regulations that also by, you know, they were saying, if we lose this case, then all these 680 laws have to fall into line. And that was, and hey, that's what happened. Right? Exactly. They created a blueprint, the, the, the opposing side, because they were trying to make a case. If this, uh, if they win this case, the Moritz case, it will create a precedent that could uh, later have implications for these many, many situations. And they listed more than 600 situations. That was actually a blueprint that they gave <laughs> to people like RBG and other like-minded lawyers and policymakers yep. who were interested in fighting sex-based. <laughs> the second half of your book covers um, the topic of how to develop a workaround mindset. And uh, again, I'm struck by it. it's it's very gracious and generous. It doesn't really attack anybody. What I took away from it was that it's an alternative approach to tackling problems from a kind of classic, conventional, business school, rigorous, analytical approach, that it seems more driven by the back end, by grasping the situation, that a problem correctly framed is mostly solved. I think Kettering had a quote to that effect. Um, having said that, my, my question is, can you just share the, the key aspects of, of what prescriptive actions for developing a workaround mindset individually and as, a, as a, an organization? Sure, yes. Uh, the, 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 the first half of the book describes these four workarounds, combining many cases and spelling out the core features of each of these workarounds, what they, uh, what they use, what they benefit from, and the kinds of impacts they have. The second half describes mindsets, attitudes, how workarounds can be pursued in an organization or in people's daily lives, um, and, and offers uh, a sort of uh, playbook for coming up with ideas of workarounds. Uh, and the attitude is pretty much focused on how you can create this deviant mindset that is not disobedient, but it's showing how workarounds allow you to effectively deviate from the status quo in a way that is relatively low stakes and that can open up many opportunities for change later on. Uh, so different from confrontation, from negotiation, uh, it's uh, workarounds don't backlash that much right. uh, because they're graceful <laughs> and they're deviant as well. So they they deviate from the status quo in a in a very uh, silent way, but very effective way. But they also uh, feel relatively low risk, low stakes, and that's largely because they're very precisely designed as countermeasures to specific gaps or problems. That's what feels like. Yes, and, and instead of confronting them, you don't mm -hmm. confront necessarily the most powerful actors or you don't necessarily confront the rules 
you walk around obstacles and by walking around, it allows you to effectively get things done, but also you challenge the status quo in ways that may not change the status quo. I'm not saying that every walk around will change the status quo, but in some cases it will. Uh, and I show some of like the RBG case, how it transformed a legal system, right? Like, or not alone, but how it triggered a change in a legal system. Uh, and the this this is more on the attitude of some of people who come up with workarounds. The mindset is a lot about embracing complexity, and it's about how you see the situation, how you assess the situation, but also how you engage with that situation. What do you look at? What do you ignore? And then I use a lot of ideas related to systems thinking yes. to describe how you appraise these different situations and, 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 and find opportunities in contexts that are very complex. And one of the lessons from that is uh, what computer hackers call or differentiate as uh, com uh, accidental complexity or essential complexity. Um, accidental complexity is what is uh, what is not necessarily relevant when you're trying to beat a beast, right? And, and, and essential complexity is what you have to focus on. Um, and uh, by stripping off this accidental complexity and focusing more on the essential, you find many opportunities for, for workarounds. And I, I, I show some ways of doing that, some lenses you can use to identify the, the key aspects or that that make you understand the complex situation from different angles. Um, the, uh, the, the the part that I describe a playbook, I, sh I, I kind of like show that you don't necessarily follow a linear process, but I give some core prompts and features that allow you to assemble and look at a situation from in different ways and, and use these four workarounds to come up with ideas. Right, so that's the the essence of that chapter, uh, and 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 then there's a chapter as well on on uh, how companies can become more workaround friendly, and that's a section that I engage and I value a lot the the knowledge from scrappy organizations, and show how large organizations as well, the IBM and Googles of the world, can learn and benefit from this scrappy approach of working around in very resourceful and immediate ways? And what are the implications for strategy, culture, teamwork, and so on? Yeah, please say more about that um, because I think a core challenge is scaling this useful behavior that's often situational or individual by, by people in tackling problems. Um, and it's risky when you try to scale it up to a cultural level because i mean organizational devious deviancy is almost an oxymoron you know you risk uh you know de-animating the the spirit of workarounds by trying to adopt it more broadly so what are how do companies embed a, a workaround mindset, a kind of a, a, a shared approach to being pragmatic in terms of goal setting and, and problem solving. Mm -hmm. The many ways of, of doing that and, and that relies 
thinking and, and shaping the culture of an organization, but also how decisions are made, strategies, and so on. What I, I have many reflections related to that, but I, I would highlight uh, and, and building on what you said earlier, this pragmatism and, and, and the idea of planning, because we normally assume that a company has to plan more and deliver on their plans. And yep. one of the insights that comes from these crappy organizations that I studied and from whom I learned so much about workarounds is that planning can be very constraining. Wait, you're saying scrappy because it's, it's, I'm hearing crappy. crappy. <laughs> <laughs> That's my, my accent. Sorry for that. No, no, no. Please forgive me. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be a fifth grader. It's just what I'm, please continue. Uh, thank you for, for uh, clarifying that. Uh, so the, 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 the lessons that I learned from these scrappy organizations is that, uh, well, many, uh, but one is that organizations, especially large organizations, they become very structured and they might think that they have to plan a lot and deliver on these plans. If they don't deliver on these plans, they are failing. Um, and these organizations that are small, feisty, resourceful, creative, that think unconventionally, they don't necessarily plan that much. They are very pragmatic. They are building on the current experiences in very in, in ways that enable them to do differently. That uh, that builds and and again, it's similar to to some of the knowledge from lean and from startups that you can uh, develop something in a relatively small scale, and that allows you to reflect and to see what you didn't see when you started. That is and, so enabling. That opens so many opportunities. And when you say they don't plan as much, that is not synonymous with saying they don't communicate, they don't reflect and um, codify what they've learned. It's that they don't plan too much. They don't overinvest in bureaucratic practices that create a, a legacy around existing practices and prevent adaptive ways of of seeing problems exactly and 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 pursuing workarounds or developing uh, a more workaround uh friendly organization uh, can shake things up because many times and and uh, well it's not news to anyone but most or many employees working at some of the largest organizations feel very paralyzed sometimes as right. if they they feel constrained by what they can do in each situation, the hierarchies and so on and so forth. And walking around not uh, allows for challenging a little bit some of these uh, structures and premises. Uh, it allows people to get things done in effective ways without necessarily disobeying uh, the, the existing structures. And it allows for building on uh, and, and you reflect on your actions instead of planning and then reflecting and then acting, right? You, you, it's post, it's it's post-rationalized many times. You yeah. do something, you see the result, and then you say, "Wow, there's there's so much I could have done. There's so many opportunities, possibilities that I didn't know from the outset." And that allows you to grow in a very crassive way, in a very uh, open and flexible, adaptive way, instead of being constrained from a goal that you designed in the beginning, right? It's 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 it can be very constraining. Uh, yes, fabulous. And one thing that comes to mind um, about a, a 
some of the work we do at LA Lean Enterprise Institute, um, you know, the, the LAI tries to help teach problem solving. And it's very difficult to help, say, individuals tee up problems in a solvable way. Um, one of our most popular books is, is called Managing to Learn by John Shook. And it shares a method developed at Toyota called A3 Thinking, which is a very formalized approach to problem solving. It's not too static, but it it's uh, Toyota's created a kind of um, a structured storytelling where individuals are coached in structuring their problems in a certain template, which works hard to frame the problem in a frame in a improvable way to investigate at the source what's creating this problem and to define the problem as nothing more than a gap between what is expected and what has actually happened. And then they have to work through they have to do investigation to test out what's actually causing the problem. And through that, come up with prospective countermeasures. And what this does when it's practiced rigorously is it fosters this currency, a dialogue among people that's very fact-based and which leads to discovery and creates options. And forgive my going on about this, but it that's one structured and shared organizational approach that I think develops this more pragmatic and useful approach to tackling problems. And I, uh, are there similar approaches that, that I guess you would recommend to help organizations get better at improving individual and group problem-solving approaches? Mm -hmm. um, well, the, the, I think there's the so many questions in, in what you, you just said, right? Because, it, it, and it's very complex. Uh, I'm going to try to pass them a little bit. One Please. is that, uh, <laughs> just uh, one is how we come up with these ideas and, and these opportunities for making change. Uh, and you don't necessarily have to start from a problem or you don't necessarily have to start from different framing of the problem. You can start from different assessments of a situation. So for example, you start from the resources uh, and you say, what can I get out of these resources I have? What if I assemble them in different ways? What is the default way of acting in this situation? Um, what, who's responsible for addressing this problem if you think of a problem? Or, or what is the default way of addressing that problem? What if I reframe the problem? Does it enable me to do things differently or, or to approach it in a different way with these resources? So it allows you to connect many aspects or many uh, building blocks uh, of, of this ideation process of, of coming up with ideas for workarounds, for solutions, to, uh, in, especially in situations that are complex, that you can interpret them in different ways. Uh, and uh, in terms, uh, and, and I think your question also, you, you focus a little bit how you do that in, in collaboration and, and with others and, and engaging others. 
Yep. Uh, some of the workarounds I showed in the book are very individual. Some are kind of like company-based or a larger organization. Um, and, and some of them are very based on collaboration. Others are not necessarily sometimes, and I, I, <laughs> I, I sometimes uh, say in my class that uh, a workaround doesn't necessarily have to include everyone. It's not a people-pleasing solution. It's a way of getting things done. It's a way of addressing a problem, and especially a complex problem. So I don't necessarily see collaboration as intrinsically valuable. I think that it can definitely help you identify workarounds and address problems in super creative ways. But sometimes you might be working around your boss, right? You might be working around uh, rules that are dictated by others and you don't necessarily want to be noticed. I, I, I don't want to dismiss those. And, and I want to, to recognize the plurality of users for workarounds as well. How? What about leaders? Like how can leaders best support workarounds among their um teams and and hire you know re folks reporting to them uh that's a, a question that i i've i've grappled with a, a few times and uh it's a bit challenging to think of different contexts and how leaders can in a in a sort of like generic way but some characteristics uh, stand out when when you think of leaders that promote this uh these workarounds so a workaround friendly uh attitude uh, they normally are very adaptive and they embrace uncertainty, embrace complexity in a way that they might offer to staff some guidance or some frames of reference, some, some indications, directions of possibility, but they are not scrutinizing constantly their work. Uh, they, uh, they show possible directions in situations where there are multiple choices available and viable. Um, but they don't necessarily constrain their creative power and, and interest and flexibility. So that's a, a way of uh, leaders promoting workarounds and promoting uh, individuals who will be best able to understand and address complex situations. I'll ask a final question. Like, again... So our listeners remember the four workarounds is the title of the book by Paola Savage. Strategies from the world's scrappiest organizations for tackling complex problems. If uh, a lot of people read the book and take these ideas to heart, what is your ideal uh, impact of it? <laughs> Uh, I really value the, the knowledge I, I got from this uh, organizations, these very scrappy, not crappy <laughs> organizations around the world. And I believe that this knowledge is applicable in our daily lives, in your daily routine, whether uh, getting your exercise done or, or if you're going on a diet, right? Like from this very trivial uh situations day-to-day -day, uh activities that might uh that might um improve our livelihoods or routines yeah uh, but also things that can be very transformative uh and i think that the 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 lessons i, I would like people to to glean from from this book are, are showing the the value of 
working around instead of confronting obstacles and how we normally think that it's by confronting obstacles that we will solve problems. But in complex situations, problems might never be solved. Problems change. The configuration of the problems change over time. The parameters we use to analyze these complex problems also change over time. Let me give a, 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 an example. Poverty 200 years ago is different from poverty today. Poverty, poverty, poverty. Yeah, yeah. Poverty. Uh, poverty in in England is different from poverty in Zimbabwe, right? Uh, or in an urban area, in a rural area in the same country. The parameters we use to understand these complex problems are so different, and 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 that applies in businesses as well. The problems they face change. The context is changing. And thinking that we have to confront obstacles to solve problems is inaccurate. We may never solve some of these problems. They will change. Uh, the problems change are the solutions as well, right? And the solutions may not necessarily solve, but they change what is viable, what is uh, desirable, and, 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 and what is possible to, to all of us in our professions, in our daily lives. Fabulous. All right, Paolo, I want to thank you very much for joining us on LEI to talk about the four workarounds. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Tom. This was a pleasure. A big thank you to Paolo Savage for sharing stories and lessons, spotlighting a pragmatic approach to problem solving. Check out his new book, The Four Workarounds, which has just been released. I want to thank my producer, Matt Savage, for helping pull this podcast together. And of course, thanks to you, our listeners, for checking into this episode of WLEI.